0: I've wanted to record a podcast on Retrieve for years, for two reasons. Firstly, because some people are worried about the Retrieve at the end of their flight, and this prevents them from going cross-country. And I hope this series of podcasts alleviates some of these fears and inspires people just to go for it. The second reason is that I've heard so many amazing stories about interesting places people have ended up, and epic Retrieves, that I felt it was about time I recorded some of these for posterity. So here's what I hope will be the first in a series of podcasts on retrieves and landing stories. I start off by talking to Matt Beechinor from the States about my most crazy retrieve story. I mean, my funniest retrieve story is all about just ending up in this really crazy village full of complete nutters. This woman in a nightie without any teeth and stinking of alcohol came up to me and pointing at my glider and saying, Is it gin? And I said, uh, no, it's a paraglider. And she said, it says gin. <laughs> Can I have some? And I said, it's not alcohol, it's a paraglider. And um, anyway, so it, it just went, and I ended up having, chatting with a worm farmer, and she tried to set us up on a date, and, and I was saying, well, uh, um, you know, my husband wouldn't agree, and she looked at me up and down and said, you married? And I thought, at least I've still got my own teeth. <laughs> and it just, you know, I just met them. It was just like something out of some, Crazy sitcom, you know, and and after about three hours, I actually didn't want them to come and retrieve me anymore because I was having such a crazy time. And I thought this I'll, I'll never be in such a surreal situation again ever in my life, because you know when you when you arrive somewhere, and you say to somebody, you know, where am I? You know, it's just such a bizarre question to ask people. And what can flow on from that can mm-hmm. be so mad. Mm-hmm. And how how else can you know if you arrive in a car? It's it's never the same. Yeah, You know, it's just just dropping into, literally dropping into somewhere. And it just always ends up in these crazy situations and the people that you talk to. And it's just, I think that's basically one of the best things about cross-country flying. It's not just the flight, but it's just the situations that you find yourself in that you just, that just doesn't happen when you you drive.
1: And I would agree with you. Um, Like you're saying, you get to just drop into somebody's world unannounced and I think that for the most part and I've never had a negative experience personally but for the most part people are pretty accepting when you show up you know they you're the weirdo that just flew in on a piece of fabric and and they're interested in your story so uh, typically for me people will people will come up and, and ask if they can help and and uh, want to know your story and stuff like that and it's it's a really nice way to experience people's worlds when you're traveling you know my favorite thing to do when I when I travel was when I get somewhere new that I've never been before is to go on a cross-country flight and it doesn't doesn't matter how long the flight is it can be five or ten miles long but the reality is you you get to go drop into somebody's world somewhere and and experience a new place on a level that you wouldn't be able to otherwise to get to meet people that you wouldn't meet otherwise that's a pretty special thing for me uh, a fun flight was you know, went really early in my flying probably good 12 years ago now I I was flying in in Brazil and had an outlanding, you know, pretty far away from the roads, and and uh, walked for a few miles and ended up at this farm where these these cowboys were were drinking cachaca at like 10 o'clock in the morning, and or I think no, it wasn't that early. It must have been one o'clock at that point I'd bombed out pretty early but I didn't bomb out at 10 o'clock in the morning so uh, <laughs> I think it was probably around 1 or 1 30. a little bit too early to be drinking I guess in my opinion is what I'm getting at and but regardless they talked me into doing a, a couple of shots with them and it's kind of special for me we I, I couldn't speak Portuguese but we were able to speak enough to each other to kind of have me understand their operation and and what was going around around there and that was kind of special because I grew up on a farm in in Washington state And pretty neat to experience uh, what life was like for them. And then I ended up getting a ride out with one of these guys for a few miles on a horse until he could get me to a place where his buddy had a car and then got the rest of the drive out that way. So pretty pretty fun to experience those folks' life when I definitely would have met them any other way, you know. It doesn't really seem to matter where I go. You can go to a place and the stereotypes or there's scary people there, whatever the case may be. You know, for the most part, everywhere I go, I, I find nice people, you know, extremely nice people that are helpful. And I can't say I've been to any places in the world where, where I haven't met extremely helpful people just about everywhere I land. Just really nice folks.
0: I spent two months in Colombia. I've never, ever met more hospitable, friendly, helpful people in my life. Would, oh, everybody just said to you, oh, God, Colombia, you're mad. And it was just fantastic.
1: I would agree. The Colombian people are just amazing.
0: A lot of women don't fly cross-country because they're very concerned about, you know, landing somewhere that they don't know what's going to happen to them and if they're going to be safe and stuff. And I suppose I had a little bit of those concerns at the start, too. But I had a really great experience on my first ever cross-country on a paraglider. I, I ended up not very far, you know, like, I don't know six miles or something and um, I was on this road where there wasn't a verge you know there was no curb so you couldn't walk there was just these big bushes and you basically had to throw yourself into the bushes as soon as any kind of car came and the first place that there was to stop I started hitchhiking and I saw this guy in this really battered old Land Rover sort of shaved head and full of tattoos even sort of facial tattoos and he drove past me and, you know, I was there with my thumb out and, and he went past and I thought, oh, thank God he didn't pick me up. You know, I'd rather rather stand here a bit longer than have him. Anyway, the next thing I know, 10 minutes later, he's back and I'm thinking, ooh, somebody who's come back for me, that's a bit creepy. And he got out and he said, why are you hitchhiking? And I said, oh, I've just landed here, you know, I'm on a paraglider and stuff. And he said, right, get in the car. And I was kind of, Okay. You know, and he said, Where do you need to go? And I said, Well, I need to go to the nearest town and then I need to try and get up the hill and he said, I will take you to your car. You know, and his one, one set of knuckles he had love tattooed on and the other set of his knuckles was hate and you know, and he just looked really, really scary. And he said to me, I saw you hitchhiking and I thought to myself, if I read on the in the paper on Monday that there was a, a young woman assaulted, then I'll never be able to live with myself So I came back for you because I know that if I take you wherever you need to go, then you're safe and I can go home and I can get on with the rest of my life. And he drove me all the way back to my car. And it was just, I thought then, well, 98% of the population of any country are good people, you know, nice people. Nobody's going to drive around the wilds of Wales to pick up a lone female hitchhiker. You know, people just want to help you and, and make sure you're safe and things. And you have to be really unlucky to not find a nice person. And so since then, I've never really had any concerns about landing out anywhere.
1: And I would agree with you, and, and that's kind of my general theory on the world, too. You know, we talk about dangerous places and dangerous countries, and my theory is that uh, there's the same amount of thieves around the world. There's the same amount of murderers and, and bad people in general distributed in all these populations, And and in my mind... For the most part, I think that there's just a lot of good people out there around the world. And like you say, you'd just be unlucky to run into the bad one. And you can do that anywhere. You can do that right here in the U.S. You can do it in Europe. You can do it in South America or Africa. I, I, my theory is there's, a, there's the same amount of bad people everywhere. But for the most part, there's a lot of good people out there in the world. A flight of mine from 2012, 300 kilometers, and landed in Anaconda, Montana. Actually, I hitchhiked back into Butte and spent the night there myself. And the next day, I had I had friends offering to come get me, but it was going to be about a seven and a half hour drive each way for my friends to come get me from Ketchum, and that seemed like a really long ways. And I was going to be waiting there most of the day, just just as they drove there. So I decided that I was going to start at least working my way back and, and try to hitchhike home. I quite like hitchhiking. I think it's uh, I think it's always entertaining to meet these random people when you hitchhike. And I ended up hitchhiking the whole way home. You know, it was about seven rides, I think, it is what it took me to get home, and about 14 hours of hitchhiking. And, and I didn't meet anybody too crazy along the way, but what dawned on me uh, throughout all those rides is that the folks who pick up hitchhikers, they're usually not interested in your story for the most part. There was several of those people, uh, several rides that didn't even ask me what was in my huge bag. You know, I'm carrying around this massive paraglider pack and they didn't even bother to ask me what was in the backpack. A lot of these folks, they they pick you up and and they've got a story to tell themselves and, and they're looking for somebody to tell it to. Whether they're lonely or they're just going through something in their life, they've got a story to tell. And I think that you as a hitchhiker become a bit of a psychologist at some point. You're, you're kind of a shrink for them. They get to pour their story out to a person that, you know, in reality, they'll probably never see again. And and I had some of these people open up to me in, in the weirdest ways and tell me some really, you know, kind of deep stories, deep personal stories from their lives that I don't think they'd share with a lot of people, but they'd share it with a stranger that, that they knew they'd never see again. I had this woman that was, you know, telling me all these hard luck stories about her being an alcoholic and all of the mayhem that entered her life because of her uh, substance abuse problems. She'd kicked it at that point. She was a couple years clean, but she was just going through all these stories of getting arrested and, you know, the, the trouble in her relationships and with family. And and she was literally, she broke down and was crying, driving down the road, telling me these stories. And, and I think it's really cathartic for these folks to, to kind of pick somebody up that they'll never see again and, and pour their Pour their stories out and, and then you just go away. You they they never see you again. It doesn't matter if you tell their secrets to anybody because nobody knows them.
0: Well until you record a podcast about them. Yeah. <laughs> sure enough. Yeah, no, I I know exactly what you mean. I've I've met some really like you say random. Hitchhiking's really random.
1: Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And, uh, I, I really it, yeah. enjoy hitchhiking. It is it is half of the adventure of cross country flying. The folks you get to meet, the trouble you go get into, it gets highly entertaining to get yourself home. It's certainly at least half the adventure.
0: Well, I think in in the early days, normally the retrieve story takes longer to tell than the flight story. And it's always ten times more interesting.
1: For sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Go cross-country flying. It is nearly guaranteed to be the best adventure of your life.
0: So just to illustrate some of the mad stuff that can happen, here's another one of Matt's funny landings.
1: Really good. good 10 years ago, I was was flying in Brazil, uh, and we were flying in, in an area of Brazil called the Pantanal, which is just a large swamp area. The whole place is a swamp. We're flying off of a mountain, that's uh, made of uh, iron ore. It's, uh, they're actually mining this mountain. They say if they keep mining it at the current rate, it's going to be gone in like 50 years or something. But as it stands, it's just this big, you know, several thousand foot tall mountain in the middle of the swampland. And so the rule there is that you, you fly the roads all day long. You, you, even if it looks like a grassy field, it's probably chest deep water with alligators in it. So anyway, you'd go and you'd, you'd fly these roads as far as you could. And when the road ended, your flight ended. And, and that's what happened on this particular day. The, the road kind of came to an end, and we didn't want to keep going. So uh, we spiraled down and, and landed next to this house at the end of this road. And, and uh, it was a bunch of Brazilian fishermen that lived on the, the edge of this river. Uh, the funniest part about it was that it was mid-afternoon, and once again they were, they were having some, some beers in the middle of the day, Uh, the funniest part about it was the fact that they were, they were all wearing Speedos. And and these aren't, these aren't fit people. These are people that do not belong in Speedos. You know, (laughs) we're, we're talking, we're talking 275 pound or 300 pound folks. You see these huge folks that are, uh, in the smallest swimwear you can imagine. Uh, and they were extremely welcoming and happy to have us there. Um, And we sat down and and had a few beers with them, Uh, but it was pretty entertaining to be sitting around with essentially a bunch of naked folks uh, around the (laughs) table drinking beers in the middle of the day.
0: Here's a funny retrieve story from Jug Agarwal. He'd just moved to the U.S. and talk about being picked up in style.
2: Uh, I'd been in the U.S. six months,
0: Mm.
2: and uh, there was a fly-in at a site called Lakeview, which is up in the high desert. Of Oregon. And launch was from a mountain called Black Cap at around 8,000 feet. And uh, I'd been flying with this chap called Bob. This was a particularly good day. We got up and I was flying with Bob and we were, basically went over the back and it was reasonably high. It was 10 to 13,000 feet, maybe even 14 at that point. And then I lost sight of Bob and he decided to go and land. And his girlfriend was picking him up and, and that was okay. And then I asked Bob if he or his girlfriend if they would they would follow me. So um, they did, and I think that was the last communication I had. No, I could hear him, and he said they were running out of gas and they were turning around. So I was at fourteen and a half thousand feet, thinking, "Yay!" Following this road through the middle of this desert, thinking, "Oh shit, <laughs> how do I get back?" So everywhere is parched, brown, and there's just nothing. And occasionally there's a car get driving along this dirt road, and the road's around 8,000 feet, so 7,000 feet below. And I keep thinking, okay, well there's a green, there's a green field there next to a house, or at least if I can get to that house, that's fine. So I'm now looking at green fields, thinking there's irrigated grass and all this sort of stuff. So at seven o'clock in the evening, I'm still in the air and I'm going up, and there's this big ridge and i'm going up on this ridge and i'm thinking okay what are you going to do <laughs> so i decided that i'd had enough after whatever it was 6 or 7 hours of flying and i was going to going to go and land and i found this this um this farmhouse with a big field and i kind of landed in this field and it was all great nice lush green field and then a couple of kids came out on their uh atv and they thought they thought I was putting up a tent on their lawn, <laughs> and, they, and kind of explained, "No, I just flown from Lakeview," and they didn't really understand. They said, "Well, come and meet my mom." So after packing up my gear, I walked up to the farmhouse and uh, introduced who I was, and I'd flown with my paraglider from Lakeview, which was it was about 80 miles, 70 76 miles. And I asked if I could get a ride back. and They kind of looked at me and laughed and said, that's a four hour drive. You're not going back tonight. And I, I kind of thought, oh, shit. So um, eventually they let me stay in their farmhouse and they provided breakfast the next day. In the meantime, I was able to contact my friend Bob, who had his um, light aeroplane uh, in Lakeview. And he said he'd come and pick me up the next morning after I'd confirmed that this farm which I'd never noticed had 4,000 foot sealed runway. So uh, so Bob came the next morning, picked me up in his light aeroplane, and the, one of the most amazing things about that was seeing the whole terrain from 3,000 feet lower than when I paraglided across.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that was way cool. That was and, and I, I I I'd been new in the country, and, and it was all amazing.
0: Next is Alan Ford's story of his epic land out and walk out at the 2012 British Championships at Pedro Bernardo in Spain. The Chris he's referring to is Chris Troll, retrieve manager for the Championships, who has a wry sense of humour at the best of times. Well, to be honest, I think the first thing that we need to say is that you'd spent the whole week singing. (laughs) 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 You're, um, that was your way of kind of relaxing and, and cheering everybody up, and, and you did do quite a lot of singing that week, didn't you? Uh, yeah,
3: it's, to say the least, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So you were flying along, and you ended up where?
3: I put down in this little field, and instantly after landing, and I had a good look around because we'd been told about uh, the local area in balls, and it was a sort of a ball paddock that I was in but there was no balls, so it was all good. So then after realising, right, okay, I packed my glider up, climbed over a eight-foot fence into a, a bit of a, a bit of a track, and there's all these big signs saying, you know, do not enter, balls, and this sort of thing. So I asked um, Chris the best way I could get out of the, the field where I was, and he said, have, have you tried a helicopter? I started on my trek which was having to go up a mountain to go down the mountain to get out because i was quite a way out in the middle of nowhere up this mountain range and what we'll, we'll i've walk walking for you know two or three hours in the sweltering heat going through like little tracks with like the trees going over the top quite low you know dragging on your ladder on your back and all the bits falling down your net. i eventually got to this clearing which chris said you know you'll get to this clearing and the other side of this big clearing, this big clear field, that's where the retreat car has got to. It's, uh, I thought, oh, brilliant, you know, I'm really tired, it's, like, really hot. And I got to this sort of clearing, get getting near this clearing, I, so I started to notice that like, under this, like, woodland area, there's like, some, like, like, balls, not the normal sort of fighting ball sort of thing, just, like, sort of brownie balls and, you know, different sort of balls, and it's like, they're quite interestingly. me. With you know, I don't think they've really seen humans up there because like, it's really, really somewhere where you can't really get with a vehicle. So I chose to go towards the wood side, where there's this wall. I thought, well, you know, in the clearing there's these big like breeding stock balls. And I thought well, I'm not going in there, and there's some young calves in there. So I went into the woods and along the side of the wall, keeping tight to the wall. I thought, well, you know, this is, makes sense. And just walking along, you know, minding my own business and there was a um, quite loud rustle and I was confronted by this big black ball, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which at this point I was like, you know, all panic and sort of like went to like fall over the wall into the field, which the other balls were in, but they were at the other end so I thought I'd be fine. Going over, just about going over the wall the bull that was charging at me took a turn obviously to the right of where I went and went straight into the field that I was going into. There was, this wall just didn't continue. These walls had big gaps in everywhere. It was like, um, like a big maze and they knew their way around it and I didn't. So having to get back over the wall, back the other side of the wall away from the bulls um, with a paraglider seemed a bit interesting. So after Getting back over, and this bull was like rather very interested, I'd say, in me. Um, uh, you know, doing the old stamping thing and like you know, calling turns. <laughs> like, you could see he was like quite lively, obviously, I disturbed him. So, I was like, radioed through to Chris, um, saying, this, There's no possibility of me getting past this clearing as I've just been chased by a bull. Um, which I didn't get the response I really thought I'd get. I got the response of, have you tried singing to it? <laughs> Which, the <being laughs> s- stood facing a ball that is really not happy with you and there's young calves and stuff. I was like, that isn't the answer I wanted. No, I can laugh about it, but at the time it was, it was quite a serious position I was in because, you know... Everywhere there were these bulls and you couldn't see them because there were under trees and things sheltering through from the sun.
0: Alan survived his ordeal unscathed, as I'm pleased to say, as did Ian Frew, who for our final story for this podcast tells his story from the rat race in Oregon. You never know what treats await you in a big yellow van in Oregon. And if you have listeners with a delicate disposition with you, you may want to turn the volume down at this point.
4: Yeah, so this was actually in uh, June uh, June 2012 is when this, this particular story happened. So the rat race is held in Woodrat, Oregon, which is uh, just about maybe oh, near the Californian border. So it's actually quite hot. Uh, down there uh, in June time frame, you know, 85, 90 degrees. Anyway, it was this day. I'm on launch, uh, and they're basically launching all the all the pilots. And I had a little bit of a tummy, a little bit of the diheria high ho hey from the night before. <laughs> so I was sort of, I was waiting as long as possible to uh, to, to to go off the launch and see how my, how things would turn out. But, as the day progressed, I thought, oh no, I'll just uh, I'll just enjoy myself, I'll just take it easy." And I decided at this point not to fly right So this retrieval story is basically just a retrieval story from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain, which is a distance of about you know two thousand feet uh, vertical. So I'm watching all the pilots fly, they'll take off. I just assumed I would, you know, and on launch, the rat race, there's probably around about maybe 150 people on launch flying. And so there's a lot of cars up there, et cetera, et cetera. Again, so engrossed this day and just seeing everybody off, and I've been flying that race since 2008 every year. I, I thought I would just get a lift back down with, you know, one of the guys that was left in launch doing the sandwich preparation or whatever. So everybody takes off. I go up to George, who's who uh, uh, runs the radio uh, tower on top of the mountain, talking to the pilots, et cetera. And I asked George for a lift. He goes, oh, Ian, no, 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 I'm, I'm staying here. I have to stay here because it's just for the signal strength. So, um, no, I can't give you a lift down unless you want to wait a few hours. So I thought, oh, okay, George, fair enough. So I now look around the car park at the top, and every car's gone, right? As as, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, this is not good. There's like one wing, me, and an empty car park, and like 17 porta potties <laughs> lined up <laughs> at the top of the road. So I, I look across and I see this huge yellow truck and it's got a, a signpost on it saying the big yellow truck. And there's four people walking towards it. So I shout across to George. I say, hey George, no problem. I see some people going down the mountain here. I'll go and get left off of these guys. So as I'm walking towards to catch up uh, this chap, he is built basically like Hulk Hogan with no hair. The guy is just <laughs> massive. You know, he's like Brutus from Popeye. And um, there's another little uh, lady with him, a um, little sort of roundish lady, sallow-skinned, and then a slim guy, an um, American, and another American female, you know, probably in their 40s. So they uh, walk towards the car. So I run up to this guy, uh, the Hulk Hogan chap, and I say, Hey, could you give us a lift down the mountain here? And he turns around, he's holding a bottle of beer, and he says, Yeah, no problem, as long as you don't like uh, mind, I've had like nine bottles of beer here uh, on the way down. So, I mean, that should have been a red flag from the start, right? So I uh, I thought to myself, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem, that's fine, that'll be okay, you know, it says you've got other people you're driving, so I'm sure you'll drive fine. So we get into the truck, and I'm about to try and, you know, fling my, uh, it's a pickup truck, so I'm about to fling my, my wing in the in the back and go into the main cab. He goes, oh, no, no, there's no space in the main cab, you're going to have to sit in the back. I went, eh, okay, no problem. So at this point in time, I put my paraglider wing into the back of the truck and I noticed in the truck the full bed of the truck is covered with wood chips and sitting in the middle of this uh, bed or truck is a metal pole and tied to the metal pole is a brown dog about 120 pounds slabbering Mm. at the mouth at the back of the truck there's a cooler which has been bolted down to the back of the bed of the truck also which is full of beer Um, so on either side of the cooler there's space for about one and a half people right so i'm looking at this wood chips and the dogs obviously been doing its business (laughs) all over this place so i managed to find that on the other side of the cooler i put my wing and i climb in the back so i climb in the back and i sit down and then the car takes off down the road so as i said we've only got like 2000 feet it takes about 20 minutes normally to get down to the bottom so i thought i'll be fine so the dog in the meantime is not standing on the wood chips the dog is actually standing uh, on a little raised platform right behind the cab of the truck and it's like slippy and silvery so I'm now wedged between the cooler and the right hand side of the truck I'm sitting down and the dog uh, is on this little platform and off we go and the road of course since it's a forest road it's, it's a pretty bumpy and the dog is slipping and slipping the dog now starts sitting on the, standing on the the, the the bed of the truck with all the wood chips and he's still a bit wobbly. So now he backs himself up um, towards me, you know, because I'm sitting at the back of the truck. And he just sits his crotch right down on top of me, right? So <laughs> I have this 120 pound dog now sitting on top of me, jammed at the back of this truck. Meanwhile, because it's got like big slobbery chops, so I've got the slobbers from this dog with the wind blowing straight in my face as I'm flying <laughs> down this truck, right? So I'm thinking, oh, God, this, this is just, okay, it's only like 15 minutes to go. Mm-hmm. You know, but this time, we've travelled about five minutes, and a truck comes up to a stop. i like, okay, what's happening here? And it comes up to a stop, and out the back, the little Caucasian white female, um, who's in her mid-40s, she jumps out the back, she's holding like a 25-ounce can of margarita mixed uh, with vodka, <laughs> or whatever the hell it's in that damn thing, <laughs> tequila, I guess. And she actually is pretty intoxicated, and she staggers up to the back of the truck. I says, everything okay? She goes, yeah, 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 yeah. They just um, they just sent me in to come and see you and keep you company on the way down. I says, seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she tries to clamber into the back of this truck. Of course, at this point, the dog's still sitting on my lap, right? So she shooes away the dog, gets him off, and then I says, well, does it- I'll move the bag, and you can sit over the, in the other side of the cooler, uh, the left-hand side of the truck. She goes no, 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 I'll just squeeze in here beside you. Now, this lady is, you know, I'm like, she's probably about maybe 145, 150 pounds, a little bit small. So she's not thin by any means. And there's a very small space between me, the cooler, and the right right hand side (laughs) of the truck. So she jams herself in right next to me between the cooler and puts her arm around me and then bangs her truck um, with the other hand and says, let's go. So, of course, off we go down the track and she starts chatting to me. Meanwhile, the dog realizes the truck's moving again. He decides to come up and sit himself right in my crotch. So now I've got this intoxicated female to the right of me uh, with her arm around me. And this dog's still slobbering its way all over my face as we go down this road. So she starts chanting to me. She goes, so where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from, from you know, Seattle. No, 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 no. Your accent. Where's your, where are you, where's your accent from? I said, oh, yeah, I'm from Scotland. I'm from Scotland. She goes, oh, that's a great accent you've got, you know. You know, and, and and for me, I'm 55 years old, bald-headed, broken nose, right? And um, the one thing I've noticed in America since I got here, the only saving grace for me, Judith, is I have an accent that American women think is pretty sexy. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on this truck down this hill, bouncing them down, and she just starts blabbing away to me. And she says, oh, so so, how long have you lived here, Etc. Etc. Yeah, it's fine, fine. She goes, well, I just think you're really sexy. I says, well, th- thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I'm trying to be polite as possible, of course, right? So meanwhile, she put the, the arm goes around me. She goes, give us a kiss. I went, no, 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 no. I can't give you a kiss. I've got a girlfriend. You know, I've got a girlfriend. Is she here? I says, no, she's not here this year. She's actually up in Seattle. Well, that doesn't really count, then, does it? I said, no, no, it counts. You're okay. I says anyway. I says your your husband's in the front of the cab there. It's okay, he's fine. And I says, well, I, I, I'm not happy about this. She goes, okay, okay. And then we just start talking other business and it transpires. She's from Grants Pass, um, which is all about 40 miles up the street. And uh, she's still swigging this margarita tequila mix as we're going down the hill, right? So we chat away and then she goes, oh, come on, she's, just give us a cuddle and get down here. I said, look, I don't think your husband will like this. And she says, well, we have this open relationship I went, open relationship. Now, meanwhile, this, you know, we've got Hulk Hogan in the front seat, with, and it turned out to be a little Panamanian woman, um, sitting next to him, who was obviously his girlfriend. And then in the back of the truck was the, the, uh, woman's husband. So she says, we've got an open relationship. And I says, she goes, like, I said, well, what would you mean, like, open relationship? She says, well, we're swingers. I says, excuse me? She, she goes, swingers. I says, what, you mean, like, dancers? She goes. She goes. No, no, no. Swingers. You know, we all get into a room and take our clothes off and they just screw each other senselessly. I went. Uh, okay. She, she goes. I says. So, um, what do you want to do? She goes. Well, they sent me round the back of the truck to keep me company to see if you wanted to go up to uh, Grant's Pass. I said, No, 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 no. I'm not going to Grant's Pass, right? So, of course, you can still have this image. It's you tell me all this while this dog is still sitting on my lap. So now she's, like, pushing away the, the dog so she could get closer to me and slobbering all over me. I said, look, you're going to have to stop this. This isn't this 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 is this is this is, this is a kill, <laughs> right? So now I'm starting to get a little bit worried. I'm thinking, this is funny. Because Woodrat Mountain, we're going down the back of the mountain, and the mountain twists and turns. And now I'm out of sight of anybody, right? There's nobody here. So the next thing that happens is the truck stops again. I went, mean, oh, thank God. You know, they're going to take her out, right? Truck stops and is in this little U-turn of the road. Can't see anything in the little dip, right? And then I hear the Hulk Hogan starts to scream and shout at his girlfriend. I mean, just the top of his voice. I mean, oh my God! Oh my, what's happening here? So I have now. I'm now thinking like Deliverance 2 is going through my mind at this point in time, right? <laughs> i sure like those lips boy, you know. And she now starts screaming and shouting to see what's going on in the cab. Right. And I'm thinking, this is not boding too well at this point in time. And I'm actually, normally I'm, you know, a man of the world. I don't worry too much, but now I'm starting to get really worried. So the next thing is that the guy starts laughing in the front of the cab. And I went, what the hell's going on here? This is like, this is a bit weird. And the next thing is the the, um, the glass doors open from the back of the cab, and the radio goes full blast. And all you can hear, bouncing out of the radio, so I mix a lot with... I like big butts and I cannot lie, you other brothers can't deny when a girl walks in with an 8 bit waist and around thinking in your face, you get sprung. At which point, the Panamanian female sticks her butt through the back of the window um, and starts moving it to this, or makes a lot of sounds, right? The only saving grace is she still had her pants on, as far as I was concerned, at this point in time, right? So now... um the guy actually takes off again, and I'm thinking, oh, thank God for this. So he now takes off, and this uh, woman from America is still now uh, trying to get me to go to Grants Pass. Now, we're about three quarters of the way down the mountain, and once you come out of the forest road, there's a car park where the, where the, the, the normal people park to go up the hill, and then there's the main road, which, you know, 40 miles <laughs> later takes you to Grants Pass. <laughs> so I'm now get towards the bottom of the hill, and we're starting to pass by where the cars are all parked. And the guy's not stopping. So I'm like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. And I start screaming at the front of the cab, stop, stop, stop. (laughs) And uh, this guy, completely oblivious because the music's still blaring out loud. And the Caucasian female sit next to me. She starts screaming, at which point the guy recognizes there was something going on in the back of the truck. And he puts on his anchors and swears off the road of this truck and puts like one axle into a ditch, right? So he's not too happy, right? So at this point in time, we're now down at the bottom of the road, and I'm jumping out, and this Hulk Hogan jumps out the front of the cab and looks at the front axle of the, of the truck and sort of shakes his head. He goes, oh, it's all okay. So I'm thinking, great. Thank you, people. That's awesome, awesome, awesome. Thanks for your help. So I start walking back up with my, pull my gear out the back of the truck and just walk up to where I see one more person at the top of the, uh, the road waiting for a, a retrieval. And uh, the woman in the back says, where are you going? Where are you going? She goes, I says, um, I'm just going up here. No, 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 no. Yeah, one good turn deserves another. I says, I ain't going to Grants Pass. It's right, not going to happen. She comes. goes, no, no, just help me out the truck here. I said, okay, okay, I'll help you out the truck. So i give her my hand to help her out the truck. And she goes, no, 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 no. And she turned around. She goes, just grab my ass and help me out, will you? And, of course, being the, the gentleman I am, I actually just grabbed her by the buttocks and <laughs> gently put her back on the ground. So that was... um. That was my retrieval uh, a story from, from the rat race from 2010. <laughs> um, and, it, and it, it, you know, I went, I went back the following day and I told that story to the entire pilots and they actually thought I was making it up. But, I, you know, this year when I was back at the rat race, uh, Larry Shaw from Alaska was there and people, you know, Jug was telling me as well, I thought he was joking. He said, hey, not big yellow trucks back here and they're asking about you. I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sure enough, it was actually there. <laughs> And Laddie got a, a trip down and Laddie would say to me, Ian, I tell you guys what Ian told you last year, one hundred percent true. He says, I would <laughs> rather have cravats, full stalls, spin reserve tosses than take that truck down the road again. So <laughs> so people who want to retrieve be aware of the big yellow truck from Grants Pass in Oregon.
0: Thanks to Matt Echenor, Jug Argawal, Alan Ford and Ian Frew for sharing their stories. I hope to make this a series of podcasts. So, if you have any interesting landing or getting back stories, or know somebody else who does, please contact me at judith at theparaglider.com. All our podcasts can be listened to at slash podcasts. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts, and articles on the paraglider, please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts, and articles, and we'd be happy to produce them, but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on the paraglider.com, as well as on the main index page. Thank you.